0: really really excited about today's class I'm really honored that you're here that you would come here or tune in on TV or be at the Jersey Village campus of this class all of those things themselves are the encouragement that I need to work on this class I've got my nephew Davis here today Davis is a second year law student at Wake Forest University Uh, great law school out on the east coast it's kind of like the Texas Tech of North Carolina or whatever and and it's a a delight to have him here I told him if he would come I would not call on him but today is almost a law school class for you if you are a lawyer I bet you get CLE credit for it continuing legal education let's get straight into it don't think odd Man, I didn't go to law school for a reason. This is going to be terrible. No, this is Bible study. This is Bible study hour. You just happen to have come or tuned in to the only Bible study, I dare say, in the United States. Nay, 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 on planet Earth that will be talking about a couple of the things you've got in class today. So let's get right into it. If we were at the United States Supreme Court building and we came up to the south entrance of the building, which I've got on this slide, you would see on the south entrance of the building this uh, uh, carving that represents law on the top of the court. And if I blow up the center part there, you're going to see in the very center, that's Moses. He's got the Ten Commandments on each side the center figure for the law of the United States Supreme Court building. Now to his right, our left, as we're looking, whoops, I'm going the wrong way. Let's go the right way, is Confucius, who's recognized as a giver of laws from the Eastern religious traditions. And then we've also got to his right, our left, our right, Solon. Solon was the Greek Athenian in like 500 plus B.C., who's generally given credit for laying down the foundations for democracy, even though it really didn't take during his day. But he was a lawgiver, a poet, uh, who uh, and and all of this kind of stuff. So you would see that walking into the Supreme Court building. If you got past the metal detectors, and if you were allowed in the courtroom where the United States Supreme Court has been hearing cases for longer than I've been alive, and most of you as well, in that courtroom on the east wall, you would see the following frieze. This is another carving that's up on the ceiling, and it's got a number of different people associated with the law. Moses is right here, standing next to Hammurabi. People we've been talking about in here, if I blow it up, you can see them a little bit better. Moses has a better beard, and he's got the tablets. Freebie here. The tablets are written in an Aramaic script that didn't become being used until about 400 B.C. So it's a little bit of an anachronism. I'm going to cut them some slack because they could kill me on a case of mine one day. But other than that, It's got Moses as a lawgiver, Hammurabi's code is famous as well. If you were to go to a Jewish temple, or you were to go to Jerusalem and look for uh, certain places where the Ten Commandments are, the Ten Commandments are generally represented in Judaism like this. Now, that's not the full commandment, it's basically the first two words of each of the commandments. And, you may find this interesting, may not, different groups number the Ten Commandments differently. So we're used to the general evangelical numbering. And the general evangelical numbering is to have no other gods before me, but the Jewish one, if you're reading the Jewish here, the anachi is is a reference to uh, I am the Lord your God because they put that as the start of the First Commandment. And then the Jewish one says, you won't have any other gods before me as the second commandment, even though in most evangelical circles we put no idols as the second commandment. The third commandment for us is not to take the name of the Lord God in vain. That's um, basically, that's where the Jewish ones catch up with us. So they've got... uh, uh, No idols included in no other gods. Just irrelevant for our purposes. But if you're reading the Hebrew and somebody is on the internet, if not in here, they're going to send me an email that says, you put no idols there. No idols is part of that one. That doesn't say no idols. I know it doesn't say no idols. It says no other gods. So that's okay name in vain. It gets caught up there. Uh, Keep the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. By the way, I get to preach on don't commit adultery. uh, uh, In the main center, Pastor Stephen asked me if I would in November or or almost mid-November. So we may not cover that one in here because it'll be duplicated by and large in there, but we go into more depth in here. But I mean, short story long, don't do it. No stealing, no false witness, no coveting. Or as Kevin Parker always says, be above it, don't covet. Um, Everything's a rhyme. Now, I want to talk about this today, but I want to talk about the Ten Commandments in three points. The first idea that I've got is this that we've been talking about up to now. Law is a reflection of the lawgiver. Law is not simply something we should read for the law because it reflects the person who, or thing or God who gave the law. And we're going to cover that in point one. Point two, we'll look at the first commandment today, no other gods. And if we've got time, we'll look at the no idol commandment as well. So that's the goal. Let's start with law as a reflection. I have spoken in the last couple of classes about how uh, we we should read the old testament law not simply to find out what god told israel to do or not to do but we should read it and meditate on it and think about it because it reflects god's morality god's character god's ethics if it were to be considered and placed in the Israelites in that time and place and culture and history. Now, there are lots of little extra things I've added onto there for reasons, and we'll flesh through those. But the general idea is there God said, You do this to be holy, and you do this to be holy because I am holy. These are my laws, God said, and they reflect God. That's not a novelty in the sense of, wow, who who'da ever thunk? All law is effectively that way. I want to give you three examples. Example number one, the Comstock Laws, 1873. Now the Comstock Laws basically said it's illegal to ship Or to sell contraceptives, filthy books, that's literally in the law, filthy books, letters, filthy letters. That includes letters of a sexual nature between a husband and a wife. Husband can't write his his wife, wife can't write the husband something that has some. And there's more to the law. The fines for this were up to $5,000 and you could be imprisoned for up to five years if you violated the Comstock laws. Now they got passed by the U.S. government, but a lot of states then passed them as well to make sure that the state laws were there because the federal government's laws just governed what would happen if you mailed something from one state to another state. But the states made it where it applies within the state itself now those Comstock laws illegal to ship or sell contraceptives filthy books or letters and more fines up to five thousand dollars in prison up to five years they're named after Anthony Comstock he was the postmaster general and he's the one who wrote the law in essence pushed the law And that law is a reflection to some degree of Anthony Comstock. Now, 1873, think back in your history. We're eight years after what? The close of the Civil War. And you know how those soldiers could be. And Anthony Comstock had a friend who he believed was, in our language today, addicted to pornography. And that friend in New York City died prematurely and Comstock thought it was directly related to the pornography. And so for Comstock, he really pushed behind him and here's the reflection the New York Society for the suppression of vice you can read the law but that law is a direct reflection of Anthony Comstock's experiences and work trying to root out vice in New York City by the way do you know where he got his principal funding for this the YMCA because the YMCA was concerned about it and 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 uh, uh, found him persuasive so the Comstock laws directly reflect the experiences the character and the morality of Anthony Comstock by the way why do you care well because it's not just the Comstock laws that reflected the values and character, but there was also a woman named Estelle Griswold, and Estelle Griswold was not happy with these laws and decided to do something about it. So in 1961, in New Haven, Connecticut, she sold, or was responsible for the clinic, that sold contraceptives to a woman she got arrested she got tried she got convicted so she's opened a birth control clinic in 1961 arrested tried and convicted for supplying contraceptives she appealed it All the way to the United States Supreme Court. But Estelle Griswold's actions themselves are a reflection of who she was and what she had going on. That birth control clinic she opened was a Planned Parenthood clinic in Connecticut. Now, Planned Parenthood Center of New Haven, Connecticut, she does this on purpose because she wants to be convicted because she wants to try to get the laws overturned. So the law goes up to the United States Supreme Court. It's Griswold versus Connecticut. Every law student reads it. Did you study in your first year con law class, Griswold versus Connecticut? Hold your hand up if you did. Becky, did you study it at the University of Texas? See, even that ronky dunk school studies it. Uh, (laughs) Did you study it? Any lawyer in here studied Griswold versus Connecticut in law school because it's a monumental decision. In Griswold versus Connecticut, the Supreme Court struck down the law as violating the right to marital privacy. A constitutional right. Held that, that law, the Comstock laws are unconstitutional because they intrude and violate upon the constitutional right of marital privacy. Now, you know what? Constitution doesn't say one silly thing about marital privacy. It's totally made up. So what they have to do is they have to put language out there. They can't just say, you know, we don't agree with this. This was fine in the 1870s but we're in the liberating 60s and if a woman and husband want to have a kid great if they don't that's what birth control is there for and a wife ought to be able to write her husband anything she wants to and the government doesn't have a right to open those letters doesn't have a right to look at those letters doesn't have a right to seize those letters doesn't have a right to prosecute her for writing something sexual in nature to her husband There's a marital right to privacy. And so the Supreme Court's majority opinion says it's not specifically set out in the Constitution, but it's found in the penumbras and emanations of the Constitution. I don't even know what a penumbra is. An emanation? It's saying it's not like there, but it's there if you read between the lines. it's it's the law struck down because the penumbras and the emanations of the Constitution say it's not there now here's the problem that's a reflection too but it's a reflection in more ways than you know because there are four people who sign on to Earl Warren's decision Earl and three more and you're saying but wait a minute the Supreme Court is nine people there has to be five only four people would sign on to that opinion several others wrote their own opinions that said, we agree with the conclusion, but we think that the right to privacy is not found in the Fifth Amendment, which is where basically a wife doesn't have to testify against her husband if he commits a crime or something like that, against the self-incrimination stuff. You know, I plead the Fifth. You don't have to testify against yourself. You don't have to testify against your spouse. So some said, oh, yeah, that that's clearly a right to marital privacy. Another said, no, 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 it comes under this amendment. Or no, 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 it comes under that amendment. Because they couldn't decide. They just knew that they wanted the law struck down. And then there are two fellas, whoops, that don't sign on. There are two people that dissent. Hugo Black and Potter Stewart say, no, Constitution doesn't do that. Also interesting to you perhaps because several years later Potter Stewart who dissented changed his mind and wrote Roe versus Wade based upon the same right to privacy that's found in the penumbra's and emanations of the Supreme Court and that struck down the Texas abortion law that was on appeal at the time all of these laws are a reflection of the character, the ethics, and the morality of the people writing the law. I made a reference last week to the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson pins the Declaration of Independence. It's signed off July 4th, 1776. I was watching John Cleese last night being interviewed by David Letterman 30 years ago. And David Letterman said, so in England do y'all celebrate July 4th? John Cleese said, no, we celebrate July 3rd when you were still under our thumb. July 4th, the Declaration of Independence. Now how does Jefferson pen a document like that? I I won't get into the debates because they're legion on Jefferson's faith. But a number of those founding fathers clearly had a biblically based faith and they're staring Romans 13 into the face Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 Paul says something that really makes the declaration of independence seem a bit sketchy look at this Paul says let every person be subject to the governing authorities doesn't say declare your independence from the governing authorities It says, be subject. Let's see if I can make that brighter. Is that better? A little bit. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment so how on earth is Thomas Jefferson supposed to get these Bible believing people to agree that we have a right to rebel against the King of England well the Declaration of Independence Thomas Jefferson pins, is based on the idea that the King violated a social contract A social contract is not um, you and I enter into an agreement to buy or sell your car. A social contract is just one that is in our society. We've just agreed to behave as people should behave type thing. And so the king violated the social contract that was found in the laws of nature. And actually in the Declaration of Independence, he capitalizes nature. And of nature's God, capitalized again. Now, Thomas Jefferson is writing the Declaration of Independence with the idea the king violated the social contract. But we can read the Declaration of Independence. Do we understand that it's a reflection of not just Thomas Jefferson, but of what's behind him, what he believes, what he thinks? Because Thomas Jefferson was an avid student of John Locke. And John Locke had based much of his thought on Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. The idea that law is above the king. The king's not above the law. So here's the way it went. Samuel Rutherford writes that the law is above the king. Lex Rex. Gets in trouble. Book gets burned. Blah, blah, blah. John Locke comes along and says, let's take it the next step further. The governing authority is a social contract between us and the king, or us and parliament, or us and whomever. God is the ultimate governing authority, and so... The king gets to be authoritative as long as the king lives up to the social contract we've made with him. And if he doesn't, then we're not against scripture rebelling. He violated the contract in the first place. And so we have every right in the world to declare our independence. Make sense? that law or declaration of independence is a reflection of so much more. The Code of Hammurabi this is your third and final example because we've got to get to the Bible <laughs> although all of this has biblical underlays the Code of Hammurabi Hammurabi took the throne in the I think he was 17 or 18 and, he, and his dad died And Hammurabi expanded the empire massively. Babylon's first empire of any size is under Hammurabi. He writes this code. It is one of the first biggest legal codes we've got still today. And in this code, which starts out with that picture of Shamash, the the god giving the ruling scepter, the authority, to Hammurabi, it starts out with, I mean, profound laws. You can't kill someone without your life being forfeit. You can't uh, uh, steal without your life being forfeit. I mean, it, all sorts of laws. Depends on who you steal from, actually. Sometimes you just get fined. But how about this for a law? This is like inscribed in the stone if a man hires a rowing boat he's got to pay for its higher two and a half grams of grains of silver per day I mean that's a law that Hammurabi puts out there now that in itself tells you a lot about Hammurabi it tells you about the man Hammurabi and by the way we have a lot of letters From Hammurabi's time as well and from Hammurabi he even though he rules over an empire is like the most detail-oriented he can't any more delegate than the man in the moon he wants to do it all himself he's paying attention to the most minuscule things and so you're not surprised to see he's got a law like that and don't get me wrong he not only had that law But he put down at the end, if anybody violates or changes these laws, I'm calling down the curses from the gods on them. And if anybody takes my name off these laws and puts someone else's name on them, I'm calling down the curses of the gods on them. That tells you a lot about Hammurabi. It also tells you something about the economics of his day. Because if two and a half grains of silver per day isn't a fair amount for the boat, nobody's going to rent out the rowboat. If it's a great amount for a rowboat, everybody else is going to get a rowboat. Supply and demand. So it helps you figure out the economy of the day as well. Now what are these? These are all examples of how law is a reflection of the lawgiver. It's that way across the board. So what I challenge us to do and what I'm trying to do in this class is look at the Israel's biblical law for what it says, not only as a law, but for what it says about God, the lawgiver. Remember, we've already covered biblical law is different than all those other ancient legal codes because it's not the law that Moses wrote. It's not the law any human devised. It's the law that God gave Moses. The law writer, the law giver, the one that is revealed in the law is none other than the Lord God Himself. So when we look at these Ten Commandments, and the first one is you'll have no other gods before you. The Ten Commandments are given in two different places. Exodus 20 is the first time it's given out. It's also given... Uh, uh, Moses does a recap in his speeches of Deuteronomy as he's about to send them in. But if we go to Exodus 20, God speaks all these words saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. No other gods. Now, think about this. God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He wants them to remember something. How did he get them out of Egypt? Did he just stand on Mount Sinai and call, Israel, come hither? No. Did Moses just traipse into Pharaoh? Hey, Ramesses, aye, aye. How you doing, bud? Fist bump got to take Israel away from you. Have a good day. No. God with a mighty outstretched arm worked miracle after miracle after miracle defeating all of the gods of Egypt that were in his way including Pharaoh who was a god. So he said. And God pulled them out but now moses was reared in pharaoh's house moses as a little bitty baby in the bulrushes is in a little ark because they're killing the hebrew boy children and pharaoh's daughter sees him and raises him as her own and in the book of acts the seventh chapter it says as, as Stephen's giving his defense before he gets stoned Stephen says that Moses was reared in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians he got first-class education honors college Texas Tech University nothing any higher I mean BAM right there okay now what did he get educated in well, number one, he got educated in all those different gods they had in, uh, in Egypt. And they had a boatload. I've just grabbed a couple of them up here. But all of the gods had their little territories. So you've got Osiris. Osiris was god of the underworld. Osiris had died. Originally, Osiris was a king, a pharaoh, supposedly. This is the, the myth behind the myth. And he dies, and his wife Isis, the goddess, resurrects him. So as a resurrected god, he gets to be god of the underworld. But he's also the god of resurrection, which extends to the fact that the Nile would come and flood every year, and that was the basis for crops working in Egypt and all of that mess. So he's responsible for everything from water to the afterlife. His wife, Isis, now this is, uh, uh, I grabbed this off the internet. At the time of Moses, by the time of Moses, Isis was actually more like Hathor's in some way. So Hathor had kind of merged over into Isis. And if you'd see, so Nefertiti was the wife of Ramesses II, and we've got her tomb is still present. We can identify it. And, and so she would have been a contemporary of Moses. So it shows us what the thought was at Moses' time. And at that time, Isis looks much more like Hathor with the headdress. That headdress is because the round part is the sun. She was the consort for Ra, the sun god, who rode with him. The horns are a reference to her mothering. They're a reference to cattle. And cattle were deemed a very maternal thing. Uh, you know... you. You got it. Milk and all that junk. So Isis is associated with mothering, family care. You got a problem with death or you got a problem with water, go to Osiris. And there are priests that are trained in how to invoke these deities. There are magic spells to make the gods pay attention and do what you want. Pharaoh's in charge of funding that system. So, you got all these priests who are specialized in Osiris or in Isis. Or, how about uh, Horus, the god of war and weaponry? You're going into battle? You go sacrifice to Horus. You seek his wisdom, you seek his counsel. Not just Horus, Seth is the god of the desert, the wilderness. You're going out there? You better get Seth to protect you. Ptah, Ptah is the god of, of crafts. He's an architect. That's his measuring rod. You want to build something? You want to be a craftsman? You need to get the help of Ptah. Um, how about Thoth? or Thoth? He's the god of writing, wisdom supposedly he invented writing so the scribes the people who do the hieroglyphs the people who are writers they all pay homage to him you want wisdom you go to him now in the face of being reared with all of this and recognizing that the Israelites have lived in this land for 400 years They've been inundated with this. They've been building temples for the Israelites, I mean for the Egyptian overlords. God says, I'm Yahweh your God who brought you out of that land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you're not to have any other gods before me. Now, we can read that and we can walk away with the very important and obvious point. And I don't want to lose track of that. Lots of things we can place as something that we rely on to be God in our life. And we should never do that. But I want to go a step beyond that in this class and say, but what does it tell us about God that God would say this? And it tells us a lot. For starters... God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. He's not just the God of the wilderness. He's not just the God of the underworld. He's not just the God of the Nile. He's not just the God of the sun. He's not just the God of mothering and good feelings. He's not just the God of dot, dot, dot. God is everywhere. You don't need another God. There's not an aspect of our life where God does not shine. The psalmist says, where do I go to get away from God? If I go as far as the east is from the west, he's there. If I go to the deepest parts of the ocean, he's there. God is telling us in that law, it is a reflection of the true reality that God is Everywhere, it doesn't matter what we are going through, there is no other God to which we need to appeal because we have a God who's there, who's got jurisdiction, who's got authority, and who has the power to deal with the problem. There is not a problem that God's not big enough to deal with. My friend Skip McBride and I were headed to Dallas for a hearing, and uh, we'd gotten on the plane, and it was the last chance really to get there in time. It was a very important hearing, and this is a hearing that's important in the sense of the case. It's also gotten to the point where it's important to see if we would make any money, in a sense, off of that case, having been working on it for 10 years. And so I'm, I'm antsy about the hearing. I'm antsy about getting up there. Skip and I are on the plane, and the pilot comes on the announcement and says, the engine's busted. I've got no chance of getting there. None. I don't have enough time to drive it. There's not another airplane. I, 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 can't, I can't get to Hobby and catch a flight on Southwest. I, I got no shot. None. My friend Skip McBride looks at me, and he says, hey, I got a question. I said, yeah. He said, you think God was surprised when the engine didn't work? I said, no. He said, yeah, me neither. He said, that's always where my worry meter is. He says, I've just decided in life I'm not going to get worried unless I think it surprised God. As long as it hasn't surprised God, I'm okay. I thought, you're right. It's going to be fine. And then we go to work trying to figure out how to make it fine. But doing it knowing that our God is there and He has the power. So I don't need for water to call out to Osiris because God can tell Moses to talk to the rock and it's going to give water. I don't need to go to Isis for mothering or parenting advice. God will teach me how to love and honor my wife and how to rear my children. And if there's a crisis in our family, I'm to go on my knees to the Lord God for His wisdom and His strength, and I'm to know it's going to come. I don't need to worry about the wilderness and all that it entails. God's there. He made the wilderness. He's got it under control. If I'm going to war, I don't need Horus to help me. I need the divine one to help me. I don't need another God before him. He's the one true God. He's the one who can do it. Writing? Architect and building? Look at Exodus 31. I mean, in in the mind of Egypt and Egyptian theology, if you're going to do a building project, you better invoke Ptah. You better sacrifice to him. You better get him to give the right skill to the people, and you better dedicate those architectural blueprints to Him. Do you know what God does for Moses and the Israelites? He says, here's what you're going to build, here's how you're going to build it, do it exactly the way I said. And He tells them exactly how to build the tabernacle. I mean down to size, down to angles, what kind of cloth to use, how to stitch it. He tells them everything. Do they need ptah? Ptah is a hangnail compared to the reality of God's fist. Not even a hangnail. He's not even the dirt underneath your fingernail from gardening yesterday. I need to wash my hands a little better. Um, look at Exodus 31 with me. God says to Moses, look, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of her of the tribe of judahman judah i filled him with the spirit of god ability and intelligence knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold silver and bronze in cutting stones for setting in carving wood to work in every craft you don't need ptah. By the way, the Greek word patuo means spit. It's a freebie. I've appointed with him Aholiog, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. I've given to all able men ability that they can make all that I've commanded them. I mean, seriously. Pata, You don't need him over God. God can do that. Exodus 31 continues, by the way. It ends with this. God gave Moses, when he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, written with the finger of God. Think about that. Moses goes up on the mountain having been taught, having been taught, whoops, here we go, that Thoth is the God of writing. That Thoth taught people how to write. That Thoth invented writing. But you never find in Egypt Thoth doing the writing. And Moses may have been taught that for the 40-plus years before he fled Egypt. He'd probably been wondering about it for the 40 years since. And now all of a sudden, the God who says, no other gods before me, writes it out himself with his finger in stone. That's the God. Now, no other gods. Last point, y'all have been more than patient. If you can hang on with me, I can do this one in five minutes because uh, it'll give you the idea. No idols. Now while Moses is saying all of this, or hearing all of this, as Moses is hearing God say, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything, while he's seeing that, all of the Israelites are down and they're all panicked because Moses has been gone so long. And they need something tangible. They need something to hold, something to look at, something to sacrifice to. And they're thinking, surely God wants that attention. Surely God craves that attention. God needs us to do that. Because in Egypt, the gods needed spells to invoke their care. The gods needed offerings to bribe them to do something. Hey, God, I'll give you this if you'll give me that. That's the way the Egyptian theology worked. So you needed these graphic representations of God, not only for your own feel-goodness, but to be able to invoke the God by doing what that God wanted. And you get that in the passage. I mean, we, we, we'll look at it in a minute if we need to. Because it's really interesting what happens. Let's, let's just look at it for one quick second. When the people saw Moses was delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves up to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods. By the way, that's just Elohim. I think it could be plural gods, could also be a reference to God, Elohim, who will go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt we don't know what's happened to him he's like mia he's gone man he might have fallen off a cliff there's a thunderstorm up on that mountain so aaron said all right well get all your gold and uh, they give him and he gets it and he receives the gold from their hands and he fashions with it uh, 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 fashions it with a graving tool and he makes a golden calf and he said these are your gods O israel who brought you up out of the land of egypt These are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then he says, so tomorrow we'll all feast to the Lord. We'll do the worship thing. We'll invoke his name. We'll get on the right side of him. And it's right here. This is what's been made for you. Now, if we see what's happening here, God is saying no you don't make a carved image you don't make any likeness you don't do that and I want to tell you two things that reveals about God first it reveals the (laughs) this for you Melvin it reveals the aseity of God or the aseity of God I pronounce it both ways one of them is probably right The aseity of God, if we're using the Latin pronunciation, because it comes from two Latin words. The aseity of God means God is all by himself sufficient. He doesn't need our sacrifices. He doesn't need your devotion. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need you to make something to make him feel special. God is entirely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from any of us. God was doing just fine without us. In the Trinity, He's got relationship. He's got communication. He's got ethics. He's got values. He's got morality. God does not need you or I. And if you or I ever think we're giving something or doing something for God that He needs, then we are deceived. Doesn't mean he doesn't take pleasure in us. He does. But God did not create us because he needed something. He created us to give to us. That's an expression of who he is. I'll also tell you something else. Anytime you do what Israel did, you're in effect putting God in a box. Oh, this is what God looks like. Or this is what God will be like. Or this is what God will do. God doesn't fit in any box you or I could ever create for Him. We don't tell God what to do. We don't tell Him when to do it. And we are not His boss. And He is not a bellman or a concierge at a ritzy hotel who's going to carry our luggage for us. And we'll give Him a tip. The omnipotent, omnipresent, a say it, God, is far beyond that. These laws are important not simply because they tell us what to do and what not to do. To have a better life. Because God's given them to us for us to have a better life. But they reveal aspects about Him that are Huge. So I want to look at some more of these laws next week. But for now, let me close with Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, Isaiah says, The Lord was pleased for His, God's righteousness' sake. The Lord was pleased to magnify His law. It's His law. And make it glorious. But the people who ignored it and ignored God were plundered and looted and trapped in holes. I don't want to be that. I don't want to go there. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the chance to teach this class. I pray that it brings you glory. Father, I pray that we will not put you in a box, have you figured out, feel we are critical to you and your mission, but instead, Father, continue to expand our minds to see your greatness and your glory and your love and your compassion and your victory that we get to be a part of as your children. We pray in the name of Jesus, the victorious one. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.